Dennis Messler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at the book of Hebrews with Dr. George Guthrie, professor of New Testament at Regent College and the author of the NIV Application Commentary on Hebrews. Dr. Guthrie, thanks so much for joining us today. Dennis, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me on your show. So let's start with uh, just uh, some brief background information, uh, genre, date, provenance, and uh, the authorship of Hebrews. Okay. Well, uh, you'll notice when you start Hebrews, it doesn't start like a normal letter that we have in the New Testament. In the ancient world, the convention of letter uh, often started with an identification of the author and that person uh, addressing a specific group of people. So you see this in Paul's letters. Uh, Hebrews, by contrast, just starts with God and what God has done in the world. So if we read uh, God long ago spoke to the fathers through the prophets, uh, you know, with that beginning, it's, it's obviously a very different approach to, to doing this writing. So there is uh, some debate about exactly what Hebrews is, because you still have an epistolary ending at the end of the book where the author kind of signs off and sends greetings and, and that kind of thing. Um, but many scholars, and I, I would be one of them, see Hebrews as an ancient sermon. In fact, I would say it's one of the most complete sermons that we have from the ancient world. Uh, there's a guy named Hartwig Thion who uh, did a major monograph a number of decades ago on this and looked at various kinds of sermons, at least the pieces of them that we have in the ancient world, to describe characteristics of what this kind of public presentation would look like. So for instance, uh, we find in Hebrews that we have a shift back and forth between exposition and exhortation. So the author will explain, he will expound on the person of Christ, and then will move to specific exhortation and turn from kind of third-person descriptions to uh, second-person uh, and first-person plural, we should do this, you should do this, where the author is exhorting the audience. If you think about it, we, we do that in sermons today as well. Uh, we may have a sermon on Abraham's faith, and we might start by unpacking the text as it talks about Abraham being called out of Ur of the Chaldees. And we expand that for a while, and then we go into an exhortation and turn to the congregation and say, now, folks, you and I also are being called out of our places of comfort. You know, so we turn from exposition to exhortation. Then we'll go back to exposition and say, not only was Abraham called out, he was also called in to, to someplace. And we'll expound that, then go to exhortation. Well, that's that's what Hebrews does. Um, one of the challenges in understanding the structure of the book is that Hebrews does this shifting back and forth uh, between exposition and exhortation. And we, we can talk about that a bit, too, in a few minutes, uh, just because that's critical to understanding how the book works. But in terms of genre, I think uh, there are many scholars today who would see Hebrews as an ancient uh, sermon understanding it as a form of communication that was meant to be heard. And uh, that gives us a, a basic understanding of a lot of the repeti repetition that takes place in the book as well. Uh, the author keeps coming back around to similar themes, and what he's doing there is he's tying the message as a whole together. So in terms of genre, I think we're dealing with um, a book that was the embodiment of a sermon that's chock full of the Old Testament. It's laying a foundation in Christology, but with the purpose of challenging the people to a specific response in their situation. Now, when we think about who these folks are, um, that's one of the main questions of background, to whom was Hebrews written. Uh, again, there's division on this. You do have some scholars who believe that Hebrews was written to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, for instance, there's a guy named Carl Moser who um, has written about the backdrop of the book, and he's seen, for instance, that Jerusalem is at times spoken of as the camp by those who were at Qumran, who you know wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
And so he reasons that this means that when Hebrews says, uh, let us go outside the camp to Jesus, you know, who is outside the camp, that this is a call for Christians to kind of separate themselves from what is going on in Judaism in the city of Jerusalem and to go outside. Uh, The problem with that view in my mind is that Judaism was something that was seen as a worldwide phenomenon throughout the Mediterranean world to be called outside of kind of traditional practices of Judaism or something like that um, would be something that you could say of someone anywhere in the Mediterranean world, that they would uh, embrace Christ to make sure that they're coming out of their traditions and that kind of thing. Um, But these are folks, I think, uh, who are probably in the city of Rome itself. And there are a number of reasons for thinking that Uh, Hebrews early on in the Western part of the church um, was not understood as um, having been written by Paul. There was a a memory that someone had written it who was uh, associated with Paul, but but not Paul himself. And so this uh, book has some characteristics that it shares with other writings that come out of the Roman church. So you have, um, for instance, the reference to church leaders as those who are the leaders or those who are leading rather than them being referred to as pastors or elders, as you do in much of the New Testament. Well, that is similar to uh, some of the other writings in the early church that really were associated with the city of Rome. So I I think that some of the descriptions uh, that we have here do match the city of Rome as the probable location. The main thing is at the end of the book, the author says, those from Italy send you greetings. He talks about that in chapter 13. And the most natural way to read that in Greek is as if the author is with those who are from Italy and sending word back to Italy as he is uh, writing the kind of putting a conclusion on this sermon that he is sending. It would be, um, I, I live in Vancouver, British Columbia now. Uh, we have some Southerners who live here around us and go to the college where I teach and a few who are from Tennessee. So it would be as if I'm riding back home to Tennessee and um, I say to my friends back in Tennessee, the Tennesseans send you greetings. So it'd be kind of a natural way of expressing it there. So we think that um, Rome is the most likely possibility here. There were about 60,000 Jews in Rome in the mid part of the first century. Um, and these people in who, to whom this book are written have a background in the synagogue. It doesn't mean that they're ethnically Jewish. Uh, they're probably a mix of Jews and Gentiles, but they probably are people who have a rich background in the synagogue context. The author is going to use a lot of rabbinic techniques of argumentation. He is going to uh, appeal to scripture throughout the book. In fact, I'll say in a few minutes that this book is so chock full of the Old Testament that it's more replete with the Old Testament than any other book of the New Testament with the exception of Revelation. And whereas Revelation does things through allusion, Hebrews does things through overt quotation and overt allusions. Um, So these are people who have a background in the synagogue, but the main thing is they are people who are struggling with persevering in the faith. There are at least some in the congregation who have uh, experienced kind of rising persecution and are having a hard time hanging in there in the faith. And so the main point that Hebrews is doing um, is it's, it's writing to these people to help them with their endurance. And we can talk in a few minutes about how he is accomplishing that. Uh, but let me say a word about uh, the date and the authorship, or at least what some have said about authorship. In terms of date, um, In the book in chapter 10, the author refers to the fact that these people have been involved in some form of persecution in the past. If you think about that passage that is in 1032 and following, he describes the fact that they had confiscation of their property. They had stood with those who were directly being abused because of their faith. 
And yet in chapter 12, at the beginning of 12, he says that they have not yet um, experienced persecution to the point of shedding blood. So here you have a place where they've had some experience of persecution in the past. They're at a place now where persecution seems to be on the rise, but they have not yet experienced martyrdom. There are scholars like William Lane in his big two-volume commentary on Hebrews who suggest that a date around A.D. 63 or 64 really seems to fit these circumstances. Suetonius, the ancient historian, refers to the expulsion of the Jews from Rome uh, back in the late 40s, in about A.D. 49. And uh, at that time, Suetonius says that the reason why the Jews were expelled from Rome was because of the instigation of a person named Crestus. Now, Crestus was a very common slave name, um, and many think that Suetonius was confusing Crestus with Christus. And it may be that in the broader Jewish community that there was an uproar and rioting taking place because of the advance of the gospel in Rome. And so one of the theories is that at that point, the Christians uh, who were just seen as a part of Judaism, I mean, that's one thing that we need to make clear here, is that the early Christians just really saw themselves as the fulfillment of Judaism. There wasn't like a Jewish religion and Christian religion. Uh, there was a Jewish religion, and some of the people saw themselves as being fulfilled in Yeshua, the Messiah. So you have this situation where um, that was a part of their past. Now they're in a situation which is prior to the extreme persecution that took place under Nero, and yet um, they are beginning to, you know, feel the heat, so to speak. And some people in the church seem to be walking away from the church, and so they may be going back to Judaism or whatever other form of life that they had before. Um, but the situation seems to be something that that does match what was going on in the early 60s. Um, it's very interesting to stop and think about, you know, when we look at our New Testament literature, you have um, different kinds of dynamics going on. For instance, 1 Peter, I think, is probably written about this time, or at least in association with the church in Rome, to a dispersed people. You have Paul writing to the Romans in the late 50s, uh, you have a lot of intersection of things going on here, and um, I think Hebrews is part of what's happening in that broader community at the time. So um, in terms of the date, I think sometimes, sometime around that early to mid-60s before Nero's persecution really got to its height uh, would be a good guess about the date. Now, when we think about the um, the question of the authorship of the book. In the early church, there was a divide between the East and the West. In the East, uh, recognize, they recognized that Hebrews was not Paul's style, but they thought that Paul at least had influence on the context, uh, on the content. So you think of Origen uh, in Alexandria um, and Clement. Uh, you have some of these authors who believed that Paul was uh, at least a very strong influence on what was going on in Hebrews, uh, but, you know, associated with Paul, sometimes unsure about exactly the nature of the relationship. But in the West, as I mentioned earlier, they did not hold to Pauline authorship of the book and, and did not do so until the fifth century. Uh, it wasn't until Augustine and Jerome came along that they actually started ascribing Hebrews to Paul it's interesting in the modern uh, modern scholarship, uh, there are scholars who really emphasize the fact that we do have elements of Pauline uh, thought here in Hebrews. So I think it's likely that the author was someone who was associated with Paul's mission, but not Paul himself. And if you want, we can go into discussing reasons why people don't think it was Paul, but it would be things like the vocabulary there are about 170 words used in Hebrews that are not used anywhere else in the New Testament. The author has an expansive vocabulary. He has a way of arguing uh, that is not Pauline. He has um, he uses loads of rhetorical techniques. Now, Paul does too, 
but it's very clear from the Greek that we have in Hebrews that this person had very, very advanced education for the time. In fact, only Luke and Hebrews have this good of Greek in the New Testament. So, um, you know, there, there was this division in the ancient church. The question um, was really kind of settled in the favor of Paul for about a thousand years. And then you get to the Renaissance and Reformation, and many questions are being opened again. So, for instance, during the Reformation, Martin Luther suggested that Apollos was a good candidate for the authorship of Hebrews. And I, I actually, that's my favorite um, suggestion, that what you see, for instance, in Acts 18, in the description that Luke gives of Apollos, um, you have a description there that does seem to fit um, you know, what we see in the, in the book of Hebrews itself. I'll just read that. The NET translation reads like this. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, arrived in Ephesus, and he was an eloquent speaker, which was uh, a designation for someone who had very advanced education, well-versed in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and with great enthusiasm, he spoke and taught accurately the facts about Jesus although he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak out fearlessly in the synagogue. He refuted the Jews vigorously in public debate, demonstrating from the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So uh, we don't know if Apollos wrote Hebrews because we don't have any other writings from Apollos, nothing to compare it to, but I'm just saying in terms of a description, uh, the description seems to fit. <clears throat> Someone who is um, in Paul, Paul's mission someone who is very, very educated, and someone who is strongly refuting the Jews from the scriptures. Good, good. So um, you wrote a whole book on the structure of Hebrews. I think that was your dissertation. It was, yeah. So um, what can you tell us that's uh, significant about the structure of Hebrews? And along with that, the follow-up, how does the author use the Old Testament? Okay, when we think about the structure of the book, um, let me just tell you how I got into that question briefly, and then that will explain how I came to, to work with the structure. Um, what, what happened was I, in my master's work at Trinity Divinity School in Chicago, I was um, about to do a thesis, and I came up with the thesis question, what is the function of Psalm 110.1 in the book of Hebrews? And Psalm 110.1 occurs at 1.3 at 113, at 8, uh, 1 and 2, at 10, 12, and then 12, 2. And so you have this Old Testament psalm evenly spread throughout the book. So I had unwittingly, as a foolish uh, master's level student, I had asked a question that really demanded me to understand what was going on in the bigger picture of the book. So that threw me into having to make some decisions about the structure. What I found was there was this long conversation that had taken place over decades about the structure of the book of Hebrews, even really going all the way back to J.A. Bingle, um, who was kind of the father of modern uh, textual criticism. And uh, I found that there was this amazing, rich discussion that had taken place, but no consensus at all on what is going on in the book. So I was drawn into asking that question, and I followed uh, kind of the discussions down to a point where I was introduced to a recent methodology called discourse analysis, where you're linguistically trying to look at how a whole body of communication works. How is it organized? How is it functioning to make an argument and that kind of thing? Um, so I ended up doing a dissertation, analyzing the book from the standpoint of discourse analysis and ancient literary conventions. So what you find when you get into this is that ancient authors had ways of marking their uh, works. Uh, whether they were giving a speech or writing a book, they had ways of marking sections. Because remember, in the ancient world, for the most part, not only do you not have uh, divisions in a text, you don't even have spaces between the words. So it's very hard to follow what's going on. But what they would do is, for instance, they would uh, have a statement at the beginning and the end of a section that kind of matched. Uh, that was called an inclusio that marked a section of the book. For instance, 
In uh, Hebrews 1.5, you have, for to which of the angels has he ever said, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And then you come down to the end of that section at 1.13 and 14. And again, the author introduces Psalm 110.1 by saying, for to which of the angels has he ever said? What he's doing there is he's marking that string of Old Testament texts as a unit. So I got into all of this, and, and basically what I said earlier about the shift back and forth between exposition and exhortation uh, really became a critical aspect of my analysis, because what I found was this, and here's the key. Uh, the expositional Christology of the book develops both spatially and logically. You have the author start with Christ as exalted. He makes a transition and becomes incarnate. You have that in 2, 10 through 18. He is taken from among humans and appointed as high priest. That's 5, 1 through 7, 28. And since he's an appointed high priest, he needs a superior offering. So he is exalted to heaven and makes his offering in the heavenly realm. So you have a, a spatial movement to this and a logic to this. But then what the author does is he inserts within that developing Christology, he inserts points of exhortation. So he'll push the pause button on his Christology and then turn to exhort the audience. And then he'll go back to the next step of the Christology. If you look at the exhortations in the book, they are promises, warnings, positive examples, negative examples, things like that. And the author reiterates the same kind of things all the way through the book and using different forms and, and that kind of thing. But he does a lot of reiteration. So it doesn't develop the same way the Christology does. So one thing you have to do is sort out this developing argument about Christ and see how the exhortation is uh, building on the Christology. So that's in essence, how the, the structure of the book works. But it also tells us something about the main message of the book. Uh, the intention is exhortation, and the author's trying to get them to endure, to persevere in the faith. And here's the basic message of Hebrews, that your perseverance in the Christian life will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which you see who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. Let me say that one more time, that your perseverance in the Christian faith will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which you see who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. So the author lays a foundation in the Christology of the book as a basis for people enduring in the faith, and he challenges them to see Jesus more clearly. Um, so that's, that's just a bit about the structure of the book. Excellent. And then the use of the Old Testament. Oh, yeah, the use of the Old Testament. Well, um, it's interesting that the author not only uses a lot of rhetorical techniques which show how advanced his um, scholarship is or his education in the ancient world, but he also uses a lot of rabbinic techniques of argumentation. So he, um, he is quoting the Old Testament 37 times. There are another 35 times where he makes overt allusion. And then the book is just full of, of just kind of references to Old Testament people and events and characters and, and that kind of thing. So the author is going to um, use a lot of the basic techniques that rabbis would use in using the Old Testament to make arguments. For instance, we mentioned chapter one, verses five through 14. Uh, that string of Old Testament texts that you have there, a rabbi would call that a string of pearls or a haraz. And the string of pearls uh, is the idea that these Old Testament texts are kind of being strung one after the other. And the effect was to uh, present so much evidence for something from the Old Testament that by the time you got the end, everyone in the room is shaking their head going, yeah, I got it. Okay, Jesus is greater than the angels. I, I get it. Um, you have that, you have argument from lesser to greater. Um, a rabbi would, in essence, say if something's true in a lesser situation, it's certainly true in a greater situation and has greater implications. So building on 1, 5 through 14, the author then makes an argument from lesser to greater in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. 
Um, he says, in effect, okay, so you get it that Jesus is greater than the angels, right? Everybody in the room is shaking their head, said, right. The author says, do you remember what happened to people who turned away from the revelation of God that was given in the old covenant? Yeah, bad news. They were under the punishment of God. It was extreme. How much greater punishment does a person deserve who turns away from the word of salvation delivered through the superior son? So the author is making a very rabbinic argument there based on that string of Old Testament text, followed by an understanding of the giving of the law of God through and angels, which was common in Hellenistic Judaism in the author's day. Um, you have things like chapter 11 is a, a, just a classic use of what is called an exemplar or, or an example list, where what rabbis would do is they would list loads of examples, again, with the purpose of building up so much evidence for something that by the time you get to the end, everybody is shaking their head and going, okay, I see that very clearly. The message of Hebrews 11 is the right way to live for God in the world is to live by faith. And, you know, the author talks about that. So he's using um, lots of quotations. He's using allusions. Uh, the author especially draws from Deuteronomy and the Psalms, for instance, but his uh, kind of narrative stuff that he's drawing from the Pentateuch for the most part is what he uses in exhortation. And he uses a lot of other texts and especially the Psalms in kind of developing and unpacking his Christology. So the book is really grounded in the fact that God has spoken into the world and that this revelation is the foundation for how we should respond to the world and see the world. Excellent. So let's get into more of the heart of the book. In the beginning, he's talking about the superiority of Christ. So first in relation to the angels, um, then Moses, and then the, uh, the priests. So could you go into some uh, more depth about what's happening here? Yeah, what you're kind of outlining there is a, is a main motif of the book, which is called the greater than motif, that Jesus is greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses, etc., some people have, have tried to outline the book according to that main theme, uh, but that's not the best way to outline the book because the author is doing different kinds of things with those different approaches. So Jesus being greater than the angels, the point of that is the argument from lesser to greater that I just described just a minute ago. He, uh, he's not saying that the angels are bad, and I don't think we have a situation where the angels are being worshipped. He's actually building on the respect that the audience would have had for angelic beings as those who have delivered and been involved in the revelation of God. Um, he's clearly very positive about the ministry of angels. They are sent out to do things on behalf of those who are about to receive salvation, he says there in 114. Um, so the angels, the comparison with angels is to really bring a focus to the exaltation of Christ and then his in incarnation. So notice that the quote of Psalm 8 in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, is about the fact that human beings are made for a little while lower than the angels. He's kind of presenting Jesus there as the preeminent human being. So he was a little while lower than the angels, and then exalted and crowned with glory and honor. Well, he's, he's making a transition from the exaltation of Christ in chapter 1 to the incarnation, which we find in chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. So in that sense, uh, the angels are a reference point that allows the author to speak about the exaltation or the incarnation of Christ. When he comes to chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and does the comparison with Moses, he actually is doing something similar in that he's building on the audience's veneration for Moses. You have these wonderful passages in ancient Judaism that that celebrate Moses as the most humble person in the world. And um, so he's, he's building on a positive thing there. But in the comparison, which was a rhetorical technique in the ancient world called soon Christus, uh, in the comparison, the author is building on their veneration of Moses and saying, if you are respectful of Moses, you ought to be even much more respectful uh, and venerate Christ because Moses just is just a part of the house as the people of God. Jesus is actually the builder of the house. 
He's uh, he is a son, whereas Moses is a servant. So he is giving them an exhortation there that again is causing us to elevate our estimation of Jesus. Now, when he gets to the whole center section of the book on the Levitical worship, he's now doing a big picture comparison between the type of priesthood that Jesus has and the priesthood of the Levitical priests. And that has two movements in the center of the book, and I'll talk about those uh, one after the other. The first movement is found in chapter 5, 1 through 10, and 7, 1 through 28. He kind of, in the middle of that, has an exhortation to get the the audience's attention. Um, But he starts out in 5, 1 through 10, to uh, talk about the fact that, you know, if you're going to be a high priest, you don't go down to the high priest station and sign up. That's not the way this thing works. A high priest is someone who is called by God. And the author is dealing with the Old Testament scriptures, which talk about high priesthood. And he basically says, these high priests are called by God. They're people who were weak, so they could identify with the weakness of the people. They are people who make sacrifices And this is the ministry uh, that they carry out. But then he almost immediately points out how the appointment of Jesus was different from the Levitical priest. He was appointed by an oath given by God that is embodied in Psalm 110.4. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's going to be the passage that really governs what the author does all the way through chapter 7. So he gives an introduction on this in 5, 1 through 10. He pushes the pause button, and he, in essence, says to the audience, uh, I've got a lot to say about this guy, Melchizedek, but we need to talk about you for a minute. And so he turns attention to the audience and says, uh, you guys ought to be much further along in the faith than you are. And by the time he gets down to the end of chapter 6, I think their attention is riveted. In fact, John Chrysostom the great church father who was a golden-tongued preacher, said that by the time the author got to the end of chapter 6, their ears were riveted, ready to hear what he had to say about Melchizedek. So when you move to uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, you have um, a treatment of Melchizedek being greater than the Levitical priest, because those Levitical priests, even in the loins of their father Abraham, offered a tithe to Melchizedek. And he's basing this on Genesis 14, where um, Melchizedek comes out and meets Abraham when he's returning from battle. And so he makes the point that Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priest. Then in 7:11 through 28, he builds on that in saying, our Melchizedekan high priest, Jesus, is also greater than the Levites. He's greater because he's been appointed by an oath, and he's greater because he never dies. The problem with the Levitical priests is those guys keep dying on you. Uh, they were priests because of who their parents were, their tribe of the tribe of Levi. But Jesus is a guarantor of our salvation because he never dies. And he has a superior kind of priesthood. So the comparison with the Levitical priests that the author is going to really culminate in chapter 7 is the fact that Jesus, by his indestructible resurrection life, is able to enter right into the presence of the Father for us. He is always there to make intercession for us, and his sacrifice is superior. So this is what is going to transition to the latter half of the center section on the superior offering of the high priest. And in 8, 1, and 2, he makes the transition. 8, 3 through 10, 18, he really focuses on three things that are superior about the new covenant offering of Jesus. He kind of gives an introduction to the new covenant there in the balance of chapter eight. And then in nine, one through 10, 18, he unpacks the three things that are superior about the new covenant offering of Jesus. First of all, it was made uh, in heaven rather than on earth. So it wasn't made in an earthly tent, the tabernacle. It was Uh, the situation that Jesus had the ability to go right into heaven, right into the presence of the Father to intercede on our behalf. Secondly, it was made with his blood rather than the blood of animals. So it's superior by the fact that here is the Son of God himself sacrificing himself on our behalf, and that's so significant. 
And then the third thing is that it's an offering that only had to be made once for all time. Uh, It didn't have to be made repeatedly over and over and over again, because Jesus, one sacrifice for all time was decisive and able to decisively deal with our sins once and for all. In fact, if, if we're part of the new covenant, Hebrews would say that every sin we have ever committed and every sin we ever will commit has already been decisively dealt with by the blood of Christ. So that's a that's a wonderful uh, promise for us to really kind of grab hold to uh, how decisively we've been forgiven. So the comparisons there are to give us a greater sense of security in the new covenant salvation that Christ has brought to us. And what is the author getting at when he's talking about the old sanctuary and the new sanctuary? He's drawing um, the old sanctuary material right out of the scriptures. So he's going back to the passages of the Old Testament, like Exodus, where you where you have the description of the building of the tabernacle and the different elements that are there in the tabernacle. And um, he's just drawing on scripture. One of the things that I'm convinced of is that you cannot understand Hebrews unless you understand how scripturally oriented the author is. He's really drawing everything from there. The um, the stuff about the heavenly tabernacle, what he does in chapter 8, 3 through 6, is he appeals to an Old Testament passage where Moses is looking into the heavenly realm. When Moses is up on the mountain of God, uh, God actually gives him instructions. And God says to Moses, write down the things that you're seeing. So the author is understanding the situation as Moses looking at what God is showing him and kind of sketching out the tabernacle so that the earthly tabernacle would actually be based on the heavenly tabernacle. And in Judaism of this period, there was this idea that you have the heavenly realm that is kind of moving along in history. And at the end of the age, the heavenly Jerusalem and heavenly tabernacle are going to come down to earth and earth and heaven are going to come together in the presence of God. This this is what we call apocalyptic Judaism. This is not Platonism. Uh, It's a form of apocalyptic Judaism. Um, So there is a division between heaven and earth, but there's a real place, a real dimension in which you have the heavenly Jerusalem and the heavenly tabernacle. And the author sees Jesus as having gone into that heavenly tabernacle and he bases that to begin with on the passage in Exodus 25, 40, where Moses looks into the heavenly realm and sees the heavenly tabernacle and kind of sketches out what would become the earthly tabernacle. All right. And there's an interesting passage in here um, where he says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Is that a prophecy of what's going to happen after the temple is destroyed? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question, and it brings up another really important point in the way that Hebrews talks about things. Um, what you just described is what I call text time, and what that means is the author is so immersed in the Old Testament text that t- sometimes he makes statements as if he is right in the Old Testament context looking at the un- unfolding of history. So the the passage that you mentioned where he's commenting on Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, uh, he's actually making an argument there that's another rabbinic rabbinic argument uh, called uh, basically the particularity of a word or the meaning of a word where a rabbi would seize on the particular meaning of a word and, and really kind of show the significance of that. So he's saying that in the Jeremiah passage, when it says new, He's seizing on that word new. It means that there was something old and about to pass off the scene. But he's doing it from a temporal reference point from Jeremiah's day. He's saying when Jeremiah gave this prophecy and prophesied about a new covenant, that meant that the old covenant's days were numbered, that there was coming a time when that old covenant would be passing off the scene and be replaced by the new covenant. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Good. 
And so we have this whole section that we've gone over about what God has done for us through Christ. And then we have the therefore, um, the exhortations, what, especially in the, the second half of chapter 10, he's talking about faithfulness, perseverance in regard to sin, but also in regard to persecution. What's significant for us here in the uh, second half of chapter 10? Yeah, chapter 10, verses 19 through 24. If you look at that passage, it is the culmination, or really through 25, it's the culmination of the whole center section of the book. Um, he actually, at 4, 14 through 16, has said, since we have a great high priest, let us hold fast, let us draw near. Now in 10, 19 through 25, he says, since we have a great priest, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us encourage one another. So that's a bracket around the center section of the book that really sums up the message of the book. Since we have this kind of priest, let's hang in there in the faith is really what the author is, is saying. So what he's doing in that latter part of chapter 10 is he's transitioning to a long series of exhortations that take us all the way to the end of the book. Um, so he's been he's been laying the groundwork with his, with his rich Christology. Now he's making a transition to uh, really driving home his exhortation to this community. Exhortation is the main goal of the book. The Christology lays the foundation for the author to exhort them to respond to Christ appropriately. So you have this summary uh, statement about let us draw near, let us hold fast. Um, he's basically saying, just like the priest in the Old Testament drew near to the tabernacle, you and I have the ability to draw near, but we, we have the ability to do something more. We have the ability to go right into the presence of God. Um, if you think about that whole span of the center section of the book, he starts with Christ passing through the heavens in 414. At the end of chapter six, he says that Christ has gone into the Holy of Holies ahead of us. It's like we're right on the outside of the tabernacle and he's gone inside. When you get to 10, 19 and 20, what we read is, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, uh, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. And what he's saying is that you and I have the ability to go right into the presence of God because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. The high priest could only do that once a year on the Day of Atonement. And yet you and I, because of what Christ has done, at any time we can step right into the very presence of God because of what Christ has accomplished through his once for all sacrifice. I use the analogy sometimes of me going into the president's office at my college. If you go into the office, there's an outer office uh, where his administrative assistant sits. And then there's a door that leads into the inner office, which is the president's main office. And, you know, I never walk into that outer office and just inform the administrative assistant I'm going in to see the president. I know he's in there with a the board chairman, but I'm going in to see. Um, and I, I don't do that. I don't go barging into the president's office because I like my job. I, I don't want to get fired. Um, but, you know, in, in that sense, I have more of a basis to step right into the presence of the living God on the basis of what Christ has accomplished on my behalf than I do for, go, for barging into the presence of the president of my college. And that's an astounding thought. Um, so the author is making the case for why the believers ought to hang in there in their following of Jesus is because Jesus is more awesome than you ever thought. And he brings us into the presence of God through his new covenant ministry in a way that is astounding. And so that becomes the basis for these exhortations at the end of the book, where he's basically in various ways um, encouraging them to hang in there in the faith. All right. And then we have chapter 11, which is full of examples, the 
Hall of Fame of Faithful People. So if you could talk about how that functions, what's significant in there, but please start with the definition of faith that's at the beginning yeah. of chapter 11. No, that's a, that's a good question. Now, I said earlier that what this is in chapter 11 is an exemplar. It's an example list. So on one level, uh, it works by what is called anaphora, which is the repetition of something over and over and over again. So throughout the chapter, you have by faith, so-and-so did this, by faith, so-and-so did this, by faith. And that repetition is meant to be kind of a drumming that gets stuck in your head, you know, from a rhetorical standpoint. So the author um, is going to give all of these examples of people who have lived with a certain posture toward God. And that posture is a posture of faith. Well, as you said, that brings up the question, well, what, what does the author mean by faith? He says um, that faith is the reality of what is hoped for um, and the proof of what is not seen. Now, the translation of that verse is pretty tough. It's challenging. Um, but in essence, what the author is saying is that faith in some ways is manifesting the unseen realities of the world. It's embodying a response to the living God in a way that the unseen things of the world are manifested in the world. Just as God has spoken and what we know of as the material world has come out of nothing, so we live with a posture of faith that approaches things on the basis of the revelation of God. Now, let me make a distinction between this biblical form of faith and what we often call faith in the modern world. Um, our, our understanding of faith in our era is uh, really shaped and affected by a philosophy called existentialism. And what happened with you have the, uh, the Enlightenment coming online uh, really in the very late 1600s through the 1700s, um, is you have a, a turn that rejected dogma, it rejected uh, a biblical view of the world in, in the hearts of many people, uh, because now we know that science is what really explains the world. And so you have this uh, development of the modern era where the idea was that, well, science, for instance, tells us that people don't r rise from the dead. So on the basis of that, we need to figure out another way to be Christians. So Rudolf Bultmann, in a sense, said that what we have to do is turn our back on the facts that we know to be the facts scientifically, and we just take a leap into the dark. We just make a choice that we're still going to believe that somehow Jesus really was raised from the dead. Somehow he really is there. And uh, that kind of existentialism that's just a blind leap is really a modern invention. Um, what biblical faith is, is that God has revealed truth in the world. God has broken into the world. He has revealed things that are true about himself. And we stand on the revelation and the promises of God in anticipation of what God will do in the future as, as God continues to work in our lives. So biblical faith is not a leap into the dark, it's a step into the light, if you will. It's stepping out on the solid foundation of what God has revealed to be true. And that's really important to understand. The examples that are given here are messy, some of them in chapter 11. These are people who were uh, kind of on the fringes of their society. They were often outcasts, and yet they responded to God in particular ways. Uh, sometimes even he gives the example of the people who were at the crossing of the Red Sea and gives them as a, an example of faith. Well, it was the fact that they walked, you know, they were sitting there and they were uncertain and they were doubting and crying out and all of this. And, uh, and yet they did go across the sea. So they acted on the revelation of God. And that's kind of the point of what's being made there. It's interesting in that chapter that we never have a healing we tend to, in our modern world, think a lot about faith as being related to healing because we're so focused on the importance of, of physical health, but um, you don't have a healing there. And you also have faith affirmed 
on the part of those who, for whom things don't work out very well. You get to the end of the chapter and you have some people who are delivered from the mouths of lines and sword and all of that kind of thing, but you have other people who die martyrs' deaths. And their faith is commended by God because they were standing with God's people, even as they were following him in the world and they experienced martyrdom. So faith is varied in that sense. The outcome of faith is not always, you know, the answer we wanted, but it's, it's a posture to which we approach uh, God and, and living in the world. All right, and that takes us into another therefore section uh, in chapter 12 and 13, full of more ethical exhortation. Uh, what is uh, interesting or significant in, in this last section? Yeah, when you move into 12, um, he does give a number. He's kind of wrapping up the examples there. At the beginning of the chapter, he uses Jesus as the preeminent example of faith who for the joy set before him endured. Uh, he actually says that Jesus shamed the shame. He, you know, the, the cross, there was no more shameful death in the ancient world. It was meant to be humiliating as well as torturous. And yet, what do we do when we shame somebody? We treat them as if they are insignificant. So what Jesus did is he shamed the shame. He treated the shame of the cross as if it was insignificant. So that's um, as far as translators go, a lot of them will say despising the shame, but perhaps I think it's NET says disregarding the shame. So what, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, either of those are fine as, as a translation, um, but it's, it's that inherent idea that he's treating it with less significance than you would think. He's treating it as if it... Because if he just says he despises the shame, that's like, oh, he just had a really hard time. He hated what he had to go through. And yeah. it doesn't sound as strong as like, no, he's just disregarding it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's more the sense of disregarding, actually, that, that he is treating it as if it has little significance, is, is the idea in the passage. So what the author's doing is he's setting up a comparison that he wants the the people that are being written to, to think about themselves, they are taking the persecution they're experiencing and blowing that up as the most important thing in life. And the author is in essence saying, it's not the most significant thing in life. Your following of Jesus is the most significant thing in life. And you need to put the persecution you're experiencing, which, which is important, but it's not significant compared to your relationship with God through Jesus. So he's, he's kind of putting it in perspective. And he, he goes on, he uses um, an analogy in what follows in chapter 12, verses 5 and following um, of a parent and a child. He said the reason why a parent disciplines the child is to make the child uh, stronger and better. Uh, so the discipline you're experiencing as believers as you face hardship is something that God is is allowing in your life so that um, you will be stronger as his child. It's actually not punishment. It's a means of building you up in the faith. It's, it's a common Jewish idea that our difficulties actually strengthen us. Um, but he uses that analogy with, with a parent. Um, and then he moves to the climax of the book in 12, 18 through 24, where he compares the two mountains, Mount Sinai over against Mount Zion. And I think the two mountains represent two covenants, the old covenant over against the new covenant. And uh, the old covenant he is describing as something that is very impersonal. Uh, it's something that is terrifying when you think about it. It's over against the new covenant, which is all about relationship and celebration and it's a place where uh, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cried out and said, the price must be paid. And Jesus' blood cries out, the price has been paid. Mm -hmm. uh, so he kind of does the comparison between the two mountains. And then chapter 13 is kind of a summary of various kinds of exhortations, some of them very practical some of them having to do with the leaders of the church and the need to, to really kind of get it together in unity in the church with the leaders. 
Um, and that leads into, you know, his benediction that he has there toward the end of, of chapter 13. All right. So there's all sorts of admonitions relating to brotherly love, hospitality, like you said, uh, submitting to the leaders, honoring marriage, etc. Um, so there's a smattering of just a bunch of bits, right? Is there what's what's going on here? Yeah, the um, the beginning of chapter 13, verses one through six, is what we would call paranesis. And paranesis is kind of a list of practical exhortations of how you live as a Christian. Um, so the reason why they're presented as they are here is because they were just kind of standard for, for guidelines in how believers are supposed to live. Um, so when he talks about hospitality, it's clear that some of the things going on in the church are being alluded to um, because there are people who are in prison because of their faith. And uh, he's using Abraham there as the, as the kind of arch example of hospitality who uh, entertained angels without knowing it. Um, so he's, he's giving just a list of, of basic moral exhortations about how to live well. You honor the marriage bed. You handle money in an appropriate way. And then he culminates it by pointing to the to the need to kind of work well with their leaders. And that seems to be something that there was a strain in the church at that time. So he gives those practical exhortations and um, and then ends up a little bit later in chapter 13 by just saying, pray for me, because it's clear that the author of Hebrews uh, himself has been detained probably is incarcerated at this point and not able to get back to them. So, um, you know, you often have this in the scriptures, don't you? In the New Testament, you have a building on the rich theology with very practical ways that we live this stuff out. I mean, the Christian faith is something that is embodied. And, you know, we have to live it out in the context of our communities, in our practical relationships with our, our marriages, you know, how we relate to others who are in need in the church. And so he's just giving them various ways to kind of live out the faith very specifically and practically. Right. We see that in Paul, the indicative, what God has done for us, and the imperative, what then are we to do? Um, Let's go back to uh, controversial scriptures in, um, let me see, chapter 2. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. And then in chapter 5, 8 through 9, son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So we're talking about Christ growing in obedience and growing towards perfection. Yeah. That sounds, might sound like some too, too low a Christology. Yeah. No, it's, it's really not. Uh, a guy named David Peterson has written on the, the theme of perfection in Hebrews. And what perfection is referring to there is not the idea that Jesus was imperfect and then became perfect. He was flawed and then he became perfect. That's not what's going on at all. Perfection in Hebrews, the language I think is drawn from Leviticus. And it's talking about the process that the priest went through in uh, being appointed to serve as priests, you you had to. If you think about uh, many situations, like even in the modern world, uh, many denominations have a process of training uh, that actually makes a a pastor fit for carrying out the ministry. They have requirements, credentials that have to be gained for that, and you have that in Leviticus, where the priests have to go through a process. Um, and at the end of that process, they're ready to function as a priest. Perfection in Hebrews is is basically describing, here's a path that God has designed for a person to go on and experience, and the end of that path is them being ready to carry out a particular ministry in life. So the idea with perfection is that you stay on the path to the place that you're fully fitted out to do the thing that God has called you to do. So perfection is Jesus 
going through an experience that he hasn't been through before in order to get to the place where he can meet the need that God had designed him to meet in our lives in new covenant priesthood. So um, I think that, I think that's the way to understand the concept of perfection in Hebrews. Uh, When you think about the incarnation, it's an astounding thought, but it means that the son of God experienced things that he had not experienced before. So in living a life as a human being and going through death, Jesus is having experiences that he had not had before that specifically fit him for his role as our high priest and our offering, by the way, that's the thing. Other thing that's different is he's not only the high priest, he's the offering itself. Um, But he goes through that experience and, and that is what makes him perfect in the sense of Hebrews. He's, he's completely fitted out for, for functioning as our high priest under the new covenant. Okay, good. So if we could um, just do a a few brief summaries here. So we'll do um, Christology, soteriology, and then ecclesiology. If you could just give a brief, real brief, (laughs) real brief summaries. Actually, Dennis, each of those is a a book. book. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here's my summary. Uh, My summary of Christology is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who is the glorious God who came to earth in incarnation to meet a need that we could not meet for ourselves and was appointed our high priest and guarantees our right relationship with God through new covenant relationship. That's the essence of the Christology. It also is a pretty good description of soteriology, that Jesus has saved us from sin. He saved us into a relationship with God the Father by what he has accomplished as our high priest and offering. Um, And then the ecclesiology of Hebrews is that we are a, a formed, a shaped people of God who are called into relationship with God through the new covenant to live with him and for him in embodied communities in the world who are on mission uh, to proclaim Christ as Lord and the good news that he brings salvation to the world. So our purpose uh, as the church is to live as Christ's people under his lordship and carrying out his mission. Amen. And so this is more about your personal interest. If you found yourself in a room full of Hebrews scholars what would you want to talk about with them? Not for an audience, but just with them. Yeah, you know, I actually get a chance to do this occasionally. We, we haven't been able to under COVID, but um, we have meetings every year with the Society of Biblical Literature, uh, for instance. And uh, just as an example, one of the uh, guy, young guy who's a top Hebrew scholar is a guy named David Moffat. And um, I remember a, a few years ago, David has written on the atonement in Hebrews. I've actually pushed back on some of what he's written, been in dialogue and sessions, you know, with him, have written papers in response to him. So I, one of my favorite memories of recent years at SBL was uh, David and I had a coffee and pulled aside to a table. We've known each other for a long time, but we sat around and we talked about fine points related to the atonement and how we think about the fact that, um, you know, the atonement was, I think, inaugurated on the cross and consummated in the heavenly holy of holies, that it was put in motion on the cross through the death of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. But Hebrew says that Jesus went right into the presence of the Father, like on the day of atonement, and that this was the consummation so, you know, do we, do we often think of the resurrection and exaltation as important aspects of Christ accomplishing the atonement? Uh, it's, not, it's not less than the cross, but, but Hebrews would say that it's a package deal, the whole thing of what Christ has done and accomplished. So, I, you know, I think right now one of the big topics in Hebrews research has to do with that, um, the, the, the details of the issue of atonement. But I have some other things that I'm interested in, like uh, the issue of time in the book of Hebrews. Um, and so some of those some of those kind of dynamics, we we do get in a room and we talk about those kind of things, even when it's not 
presentation of papers. We're just having coffee. And that's a that's a great joy. Um, I did a, a research leave in Cambridge, England last fall. I was at Tyndall House in Cambridge, which is a, a library where uh, PhD students from Cambridge who are evangelicals come and they they live there and they do their study there. And it's a joy to, to sit around with these young Hebrew scholars in dialogue and talk about what they're studying. And um, it's, it's just a lot of fun. Great. And finally, to wrap up, if you were going to preach on Hebrews to a congregation, what would be the core of the message? Yeah, I actually am doing that. In uh, July, in my church, I'm, I've been asked to do a series of four messages through Hebrews. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on the Christology. So I'm going to have a sermon on in something like Jesus is greater than you ever imagined. He's more a second sermon on Jesus is more humble than you would believe talking about the incarnation uh, that Jesus takes us farther than we ever thought we could go. He's the one he's the high priest. He takes us right into the, the heavenly holy of holies. And then the final sermon is, is going to be something related to the decisiveness of uh, his sacrifice, that he's more compassionate than we could have hoped. So um, the center for me, uh, that series is going to be Jesus. And I think that's a pretty good place to, to focus when you're dealing with Excellent. the book of Hebrews. Good, good. All right. Well, I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been listening to The Charge. We've been with Dr. George Guthrie, professor of New Testament at Regent College and the author of the NIV application commentary on Hebrews, um, available below. Just follow the link. And so, uh, Dr. Guthrie, thank you so much for joining us today. Dennis, thanks for having me on your show. All right. Peace to everyone.